Thank you very much. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for inviting me, Judy. Um, I've been told there's a mixture of people in the audience, some academics, some practitioners, and some other people who just wanted to come to a seminar. Um, so I'm going to try to do um, a presentation that hopefully will have something for everyone. Um, when Judy and I compared our slides, I think they complement each other. Well, I hope they do. They look like they do. Um, and I suppose that's partly because I'm looking more at broad brushstroke. What, what does the general literature tell us about care? What might be the policy implications of that and the practice implications? A little bit. I've only got half an hour, so I'll, I can only do so much. Um, and then I, I suggest maybe we should look a bit more at some other countries. And Judy then, then comes in with, well, she'll tell you what she's doing, but looking more in depth at... Uh, Janet, sorry. Oh, all these J's. Anyway, um, so um, my uh, in interest in this area really, uh, I suppose it arose first of all from my practice as a social worker for 10 years. Um, and then um, I became quite annoyed by what the previous government was doing in relation to the area of care. Uh, in particular, they introduced a paper, Care Matters, uh, which was based undoubtedly on the idea that the care system is failing and is bad for children. So this is a quote from Alan Johnson, the Secretary of State for Education. For many of the 60,000 children who are in care at any one time, childhood and adolescents are often characterised by insecurity, ill health and lack of fulfilment. And this is the key thing. Some may say that part of the reason for this is that children who enter care come disproportionately from poor backgrounds and have complex needs, but it's inexcusable and shameful that the care system seems all too often to reinforce this early dis disadvantage rather than helping children to successfully overcome it. Or, as the Centre for Policy Studies, a, a, a conservative think tank, broadly speaking, says, uh, a successful system of care would transform this country. At a stroke, it would empty a third of our prisons and shift half of all prisoners under the age of 25 out of the criminal justice system. It would halve the number of prostitutes and reduce by a third and a half the number of homeless. Um, as not just a researcher, but someone with a critical mind, I'm sceptical of any claims of this sort that... Uh, we can sort out all sorts of complex social problems like this. But also, as a social worker, it wasn't my perception that the care system was terrible for children. Um, so I, was, uh, I became involved with the Welsh Assembly Government um, in a piece of work where they were trying to... They were evaluating a service aimed at parents who misuse drugs and alcohol to reduce the need for care. And they wanted us to do two things. Um, one is evaluate the service, which we did, but the other was provide a review of the literature for them about outcomes for children in care. And uh, verbally, they were very explicit to me. They said, we want you to show how bad the care system is so we can justify this service. And I said to them, I'm very happy to do that review, but I can't guarantee that it's going to show the care system is bad because I think it's more complicated than that. But anyway, despite that, they funded me. Um, and we reviewed all the literature we could about the, um, the care system. I'm going to report on that, but I'm then going to start off by talking about an individual person, a, a young man called Rob, Roberto Malassi. Um, the information I'm going to give you is all on the public record and is taken from uh, the BBC website, Daily Mail and other places. Um, Roberto came into care at about the age of eight and I was a social worker in Southwark where he came into care. So I met him as an eight-year-old and he was bright, intelligent, full of energy. And that's my memory of him. And I then saw this picture in the Metro and I thought, I, I recognise this person, but obviously this is a picture of him at 18 um, or 17. Um, 
When he was 16, Roberto murdered two young women in 2005. He shot one in the head while she was holding a child. It hit the news. He went into, with some others into a christening and shot someone in the head. And he shortly afterwards, he knifed another one for disrespecting him. He received 30 years. And the judge described him as evil, and the Daily Mail described him as scum. And there is a link there to some more information about that. But the background, I think, is more complicated than simply demonising him. He was born in Angola and came to the UK when he was six, six and was subjected to wanton malevolence, spitefulness and brutality, according to the um, court proceedings. Uh, he entered care briefly when he was eight, when I met him, I think just on one or two occasions. Uh, he then was returned to his father, as was commonplace, because social workers tried to get children back into their families. Uh, his father couldn't cope, and he took him back to the Congo, um, and there he witnessed extreme violence on a daily basis, including hangings, shootings, and people being burnt to death in front of him. At 15, he returned to the UK. His dad threw him out. He became involved in gangs, and the rest is a very tragic story, as I outlined there. His priest said in the court proceedings that Roberto had an enormous sense of guilt and responsibility. He was highly intelligent, a talented athlete, and had wanted to work for the United Nations. For me, this case study illustrates a really key thing. We're going to be talking about research and findings and, and what's good, but we're talking about real people and real outcomes. And we often say the care system has bad outcomes, but perhaps we haven't spent enough time looking at what some of the alternative outcomes are. And that's something I'm going to be trying to unpick today. First of all, what, who are the children in care? Before we start saying what's the impact of care, we need to say who, who are children in care? At any one time in England and Wales, there's 60 to 65,000-ish children in care. Um, about two-thirds are under a legal order, one-third are there voluntarily. And I put that in inverted commas. It's an agreement with the parents. Sometimes there is a genuine agreement. Sometimes it's a, a direct alternative to care proceedings, so it's not really meant to be. 70% uh, are in foster care. We use foster care in a very different pattern to, for instance, our European neighbours who use it less. Um, but care covers an enormously wide range of experiences, from a baby who is, comes into care the day they're born and is then adopted very rapidly, through to a 15 or 16-year-old or 17-year-old who might come into the care system for complex needs, who spent their whole childhood with their family. And I think before we make any... I, I think it's impossible to make generalisable statements about care working or not working when you're talking about that sort of range of different experiences. So. One of my recurring themes is let's not make any simple generalisations about the care system or indeed the children in the care system who are as varied as any other group of children you, you could possibly want to meet. Um, so unpicking a little bit, a bit more about the care system and going to a little bit more depth. Um, of the children who are in care at any one time, 40% return home within six months with many in care for very short periods of time. Um, Half of them will have two or more, uh, half of children in care will have two or more separate periods in care. Only about 80% will proceed through the care system to adoption. I think there's a, a popular misconception in the general population that children go into care and then they get adopted. That, that is only a minority of children for whom that will happen. Um, about 13% move to independence uh, or out of the care system into some sort of um, aftercare uh, each year. Uh, so about, only about 30% of just about a third of children remain in care for four years or more. For the vast majority, it's part of their childhood, but it's not the whole of their childhood. Um, that's important contextual information when we start thinking about the care system. We really need to not be thinking care is good or care is bad, but thinking when could care be good, 
When is it likely to be less good? And how can we make both experiences as positive as possible? There is no doubt that when you compare all the kids in care at any one time with all the kids who are not in care, they underachieve as a group. They have poor health outcomes, they're overrepresented in various groups in society that have problems, which is why the Centre for Policy Studies said we'd you know, almost get rid of prostitution if we, got rid of the care, if we improved the care system. They're much more likely to be unemployed, they do far less well in their GCSEs and other examinations than kids who aren't in care. But that's obviously not a reasonable comparison because children are in care for a reason. We haven't just randomly selected children in the population and put them into care. We've selected children who, in their families, in their neighbourhoods, are usually experiencing very severe difficulties and problems. That's why they come into the care system. Therefore, comparing children in care with children who are not in care uh, doesn't establish whether or not it's the care system that's causing the problems. And neither does looking at what happens to children who leave care because, in fact, the majority of children who come into care aren't the ones who leave care. The ones who tend to leave care at 17, 18 are the ones who tended to come into care when they were 13, 14, 15, 16. So in fact, they're children who spent, by and large, they're children who spent a lot of their childhood, most of their childhood in their families and then came into the care system. So what would be more helpful? For the Welsh Government, um, we did a review of uh, with a really simple premise, which is to even begin to unpack whether the care system makes a difference to children, we need to look at the progress of children over time. Comparing them with the general population, which keeps being done, is of limited usefulness. So we did um, as systematic a review as we could manage, and it's quite difficult in this field for all sorts of reasons, um, of the British literature from 1991 to the year 2006 um, that looked at the the welfare of children, and by welfare I mean any element of welfare, quite a lot of stuff was about educational outcomes, well, uh, behaviour and emotional problems were the second most, but we looked at anything. Um, I've updated that with some comment for this seminar about more recent studies that I think don't really change the fundamental messages I'm going to um, talk about. We only identified 13 studies. Sometimes when I do this presentation, I admit it's actually 12, because the 13th was a study I did that I wouldn't have found if I hadn't known because I'd done it. But there's 12 or 13 studies, depending how strict you are about your inclusion criteria. I think the evidence is too weak to draw strong conclusions. I have put an exclamation mark here, um, because I was shocked. When we started to look at the literature, I honestly thought we'd find, I don't know, 30 or 40 studies that looked at the welfare and progress of children in care over time. They are a large number of children. We know they have very significant needs as a group. And as is identified at the beginning of this talk, we know that all sorts of social problems and difficulties and populations with great difficulties have high proportions of children in care. You would think there would be quite a lot of research on how these children do. And yet, then, there was very limited amount. It's improved since, but it's still, I think, uh, an under-researched area. So I'm now going to go through very quickly what my findings, uh, what, what we found about the literature. I'm not going to do this in depth, only got half an hour, I'm just going to go because I want to look at the overall arguments rather than some of the detail, but we can come back to the detail and if people want to ask questions um, at the end. Not least as Ian Sinclair did at least one of the big studies I'm going to talk about, you can ask him what he, <laughs> he thought and there may be others in the audience. So, in relation to adoption, uh, there's a generally a large body of research indicating infants adopted do well. Uh, there were more recent studies that looked at older children um, children adopted between 5 and 11, and they found that in general their welfare improved in adoptive placements, but the older the child, the higher the risk of breakdown. And I'm, I'll talk a, 
about a more recent study that provides some more information around that. There was also a study around black and Asian children because it can be more difficult to find adoptive placements for these children, or it has been more difficult. Uh, again, that a seven-year follow-up study found these children were doing very well in their placements. So there's a consistent finding that welfare tends to improve over time for children who are adopted. Foster care has been much less studied in Britain, um, and indeed generally. Um, there are, however, a number of studies which indicate once children enter foster care, uh, their welfare outcomes improve. And in, a, I think, an important Ameri Australian study, Barber et al. found they compared children who came into care with children who nearly came into care but didn't come into care. And they found that children who came into foster care actually did better than the ones who didn't. But the major study in the UK is by Ian Sinclair and his colleagues who followed up a large number of children who were in foster care and found generally good progress while in foster care. The, the children often had difficulties. It could, there could often be challenges. It was not a simple situation of foster care works. But nonetheless, they seemed overall as a group to make progress. But the, by and large, when the foster placement ended, the progress was less likely to continue. So uh, when they returned home, many of them experienced difficulties. And I'll talk about another study that looks at that in further depth. But in particular, when they moved into um, semi-independence or independence aftercare services, um, uh, the, there was a sense in which much of the good that was created by foster care, or the social capital that was created by foster care, I think is the phrase that, that Ian and his colleagues use, is reduced by moving them into the care, into premature independence. And this was really brought home to me by, well, I was writing an article about some of these findings on the train one day, uh, and the guy behind me was on the phone, um, and I was earwigging his phone call, and I realised he was talking, he, he was in his, I don't know, 50s, 60s, and he was talking to someone who I think was his son, and he was basically saying, look, I'll come round and cut your hedge this weekend. Um, and I just, it brought home to me that families are for life, they're not just for childhood, and the support we offer and receive to our families um, and our children, and vice versa, is something that goes on throughout the life course. And the idea that it stops at 18 is uh, an absurd arbitrary cut-off that doesn't bear any relationship to the realities of how most of us are fortunate enough to live. There's very, I think there were very few studies that looked at residential. They tended to have smallish samples, but by the two studies we found, one of which looked at something that was a bit like a secure, and one with a very small number of children that looked at uh, a form of therapeutic community, both found positive um, changes. I'm not going to really talk about kinship care. Uh, there wasn't, we didn't find any research then. There has been since. So all in all, uh, I, I, there also the, there were a number of studies, and these are the hardest to find, where they didn't actually look at outcomes for the care system. And this is why I knew my study was, but we wouldn't have found it if I hadn't known it was there. Where we just looked at, we were looking at a cohort of children where the parents had used drugs or alcohol, and the social worker had, um, and they'd been allocated to a social worker. And about half, almost half of those children came into care. And when you compared the children who'd come into care with the children left at home the biggest predictor of welfare outcome for that group was children who were taken into care because they did significantly better. Um, but I think similar findings are found in a number of cohort studies that look at cases allocated to social workers, that the children who come into care tend to do re really well, or at least not really well. You see an improvement in their, their general functioning. So I've um, had a look at more recent research to try to update this. I think the broad lessons are the same. There are two or three studies I wanted to pick out. I think Elaine Farmer's recent research, um, looking at 180 children returned home from the care system, is really important. 
Uh, at two years follow-up, she found 47% of those placements had broken down, so we'll call that half. Um, a third of those had happened within three months. Um, of those who were at home, 59% uh, were considered to be having a good quality outcome, about a quarter borderline and 12% poor. Um, but practice varied very much between authorities. And I think um, she then did a further follow-up of the children within this sample who had been neglected, that was actually published previously, but I think it's a longer-term follow-up of the same sample. Um, 138 children where there was neglect. Two-thirds of the placements broke down over the five years. So two-thirds of the returns home didn't work out. But I think particularly interestingly, she found there were extremely wide variations in the quality of practice. And those variations existed at the level of the worker and at the level of the local authority. Um, they concluded that earlier and more proactive intervention, more consistent safeguarding and more authoritative reunification practice are needed, including robust planning for children's futures when parents cannot provide a satisfactory home for them. Um, a second absolutely key study, Selwyn looked at 37,335 adoptions that were carried out in the 12 years 2000 to 2011 inclusive. Um, because before this research was published, people didn't even know the rate of adoption breakdown. And I, I, I certainly didn't know, but it was interesting in the world of social work, I talked to people who just had incredibly varied views about what the rate was. I talked to social workers who said it basically hardly ever happens, um, and others who said, I think, about one in 10 or one in eight breakdown. Um, so I think simply finding out what the extent of breakdown of adoption is, and then some of the factors associated with this incredibly important. Um, she found an overall disruption rate of 1.5%. So in fact, adoption overall is a very stable placement for the vast majority of um, people. I think that's at the time she did the study. So, for instance, some of these would be more recent uh, disruptions and others would have gone through to adulthood. Um, the, the disruption tended, had a different pattern to, for instance, the returns home, which quite often broke down very quickly. It was much more likely to happen in the teenage years when difficult or challenging behaviour would be, begin to be um, exhibited. But, I mean, I think the 1.5% is a headline, very positive figure, but it's important to take into account that... Um, the picture was more varied. Many of the placements that weren't disrupted, the adopters and the young people were often finding it quite challenging, quite difficult. It wasn't a straightforward and uh, straightforward positive pi picture. Um, but because I'm trying to look at the broader policy and practice issues, I think uh, there's a couple of key things here. The, the age at placement and the time in care were important factors that influenced whether or not the adoptive placement um, disrupted. So in particular, if you look at the time in care, 75% of the children where there was a disruption had been in care for two or more years, whereas only 35% of those where there wasn't a disruption had, not, had, had been in care for that length of time. So a long period of time in care before an adoption it makes a disruption significantly more likely. Um, a final study I'm just going to mention briefly is Mulcai, I don't know if you that's how you pronounce it actually, Jerry Mulcai and others at the Anna Freud Centre looked up outcomes for children who had received a specialist psychiatric or specialist family assessment from their service. Um, and the interesting thing is here that they looked up outcomes, uh, whatever the placement was. Um, and the, in general, the ch children who had been subject to care proceedings and had, had to have a specialist assessment had serious psychological problems at T1, as you would expect. There was an overall improvement at, at T2, and again, how far away T2 was varied. 
They still had significant problems, but the key point is the placement didn't actually affect the, the size of the change. They, the children who were returned home when that was the plan seemed to do reasonably well, as did children placed in other types of placements, but it's a very small sample. So I want to just draw out some policy implications before handing on. Um, I think the most important one I would say is care does not usually produce the poor outcomes for the children in care. Uh, usually the children will enter care with significant problems because we don't offer care. We offer care as a last resort in our society. So for a child to enter the care system, some pretty serious things need to have gone, been happening. Um, equally, however, I think what happens after care is often insufficient. There's been significant improvements in that over the last five, ten years. However, it's very difficult to replicate what happens in family life uh, for children within the care system. And I, I certainly don't think we've got there yet. So I think if we're talking about, I, I think the, the, the research or the evidence that shows that the children in care compared to the general population have got all sorts of problems identifies this as a group that needs to be focused on. But to, to deal with those problems, we don't necessarily need to just look at the care system. We need to think about what happens before care and what happens after care. Um, a key question is whether we should even try to reduce the number of children in care or not. It's uh, a perpetual uh, issue that comes up, and I think it's a current one that, that um, Judy and others will be conscious of, they're not responsible for. So, for instance, the Innovation Fund, a lot of money is going into new ways of delivering child and family social work. They uh, are expected to show value for money. Within the world of child and family social work, or children's services, uh, all it's very hard to show value for money without reducing the number of children in care or the costs of the care system. So an awful lot of those projects have as an aim better social work with families in order to reduce the number of children coming into care. I think the research evidence doesn't say that's the wrong thing to do, but I think it means that we should have pause and not assume that this is a simple good thing to be trying to achieve. Um, I also think it's really important that we begin to think differently about the care system. In the last few minutes, I want to unpick what I mean by that. Um, I think in Britain, we've tended to think about, let's keep children at home, or let's take them away permanently. And we've become rather um, polarised between those two views of the care system. But actually, I think for many children, uh, care I uh, the care coming into care can be part of their childhood. Uh, and it's actually not helpful to think of it as different from um, family support. In fact, I think appropriately done, uh, a care system could be a form of family support uh, or part of supporting families. And for me, that seems to me closer to a European model, which I don't know very much about, but I'm going to do one slide about nonetheless, um, of looking at the care system. And this idea came uh, to me from John Pitts, who I understand you're also do, doing work with, who told me they had an exchange with, um, I think it was Latvia, no, Finland, um, and they went to visit a residential unit for teenagers in Finland. And in the residential unit, the worker he talked to said, oh, last week we had the unit's holiday. And he said, what, what do you mean by the unit's holiday? Because we don't really have residential unit holidays very much in Britain. And he said, oh, we all went away to the lakes for a week. He said, oh, right, all the children and all the staff. And here's the key thing. The, the, the worker said, no, no, all the children, all the staff, and all the parents of the children. Um, and that, for me, is just something that's inconceivable in the British system uh, of providing care. Uh, as a, it's good to see shaking of heads so we can have discussion of that. It's certainly not normal, shall we say. Um, uh, it would be very unusual for parents and children to go away with a residential unit on a holiday. Um, so within the Euro European system, uh, 
There are certainly more children in care, as far as can, we can see, but there are far fewer permanently removed against parental wishes. So we're immediately beginning to look at a different conception of what the care system is there for, for families and for society and for the children. Um, I think, in general, care is provided as a form of family support for families with the most extreme difficulties. It's provided in partnership with families, rather as something that children are removed to. And that seems to me a, a helpful way of avoiding the bifurcation between staying with the family or removing permanently. Um, I just want, so I, I think the first couple of points probably I've, I've already covered, but um, I think there's a final point, which is uh, even if we do think the care is the best system, and even if we think removal against the parents' wishes is the best for a particular child or a particular family, I think there is an ethical duty we have to make sure that that family has been offered the best possible opportunity for the child to remain in the family. And I suppose a worry for me is that we have not, I, I'm not confident that that happens all the time. I think it certainly happens sometimes, but I think practice within local authorities varies enormously. So even, even if we get into a debate, and we may well do about how many children should be in care, more or less, um, we need to be ensuring that families are offered the best possible opportunity of keeping their children uh, ethically, uh, and I think to, to have a good society, really. So for me, I suppose I see this, this is a push-me-pull-you from Dr. Doolittle. Well, it's not really. It's a llama that's been photoshopped. But um, the, the, some of you will, will remember the push-me-pull-you from uh, Dr. Doolittle. I remember it from reading it when I was younger. And I guess I feel a bit like this about the care system and whether children should go into care or not. On the one hand, I think the literature today has not really, um, not, not the research literature, but the policy context has not recognized the positive contribution the care system can make, the fact that many children can do incredibly well when they come out of the care system, the fact that some children are saved from extremely difficult situations, and that the vast majority of children progress within the care system. So I'm, I'm pulled one way to say actually the, the care system can be a real uh, positive part of a good society. But on the other hand, I've also done research around, if you like, the child protection system, and I'm concerned about whether we are providing families with the quality and quantity and intensity of support they need to make the changes that some of them could make so their children didn't have to go into care. So I literally feel like this. I'm, I'm able to argue both sides quite well, and, and I suppose my conclusion is in some ways that, that that's quite appropriate. Because I tend to feel that if somebody says there is a simple solution to the problems that lead to children being into care, in care, or if somebody says that a good care system would mean that we had half the prison population, half the number of homeless, etc., they don't really understand the complexity of these problems. And to me, it would be much better to start with trying to ad address and unpick some of that complexity. Um, and perhaps that, that is the best place to start. Um, and related to that, it's perhaps also not appropriate to simply discuss the care system on its own. But we, if we're talking about care and the impact of care, we always need to be thinking about family support and child protection and the care system because they're so intimately related that you can't think about one part of this complex system of dealing with families to very serious problems without the others. And really, we need to be thinking about how to pr produce, I hope, the best possible quality of family support and care and for many families, care as a form of family support. So I suppose that's where my thinking's coming to. And I'm going to hand over to Janet to, to flesh it out. So thank you very much.
give Donald his watch back. Oh, <laughs> I came from the UK. myself some water while I introduce myself. I'm really delighted to be here today and particularly delighted to be part of this discussion at the Rees Centre but also discussing with Donald's work which I know and I think it's a I think it's a great opportunity. I'm going to steal this model of having two speakers in a seminar because I think it's a I think it's a great idea. Um, when we were planning this, Judy said she wanted us to be provocative, to really get some discussion going. Um, and to some extent, I feel like I always do that when I talk about the research that we've done in Europe, because I think it's really easy to present this as though I'm saying somehow that Denmark has got it right or that everything's wonderful in Germany. And I'm absolutely not doing that. As I'll come on to discuss more, I think it's what for me is really useful about doing cross-European research is the way in which learning from other countries and other countries' experiences of working with the same problems gives us new resources for reflecting and for questioning on why we do things that we do. So to take the example of the point that Donald's just made, in the German legislation, the Child and Youth Welfare Act, which is the equivalent of our Children Act, placement and family support both come under legal measures of help with upbringing, so there's a legislative framing of the two things. One is called ambulant help, which is the idea of the, the professional walking into the family and one is called stationary help, and that's placement. But they're both forms, legally, both forms of help with upbringing. And just that kind of, that kind of difference of conceptualisation, I think, is, is what you get from doing this kind of cross-European work. And I think that's important um, for us today, for the discussions we'll have, partly because of that point that Donald's already made really well about the diversity of the care population, but also because we talk about outcomes for children and young people in the care system. And those quotes that we've seen um, from the Centre for Policy Studies, that's what it is, um, that's a really good example of that. One of the issues is that we don't think enough about what outcomes mean conceptually, theoretically, and how we, how we think through that. Um, so that's one of the things that I want to explore a bit today in thinking about um, three studies in particular that we've done or are doing in Europe. Um, so the, the first of these, Beyond Contact, we finished end of 2012 which is looking at work with families of children placed away from home in four countries, including England. Um, the second, which was EU-funded, um, was a short longitudinal study of young people in care in England and France, looking closely at their everyday lives. I'll say a little bit more about the methods for each of these. 
And the final one, we've just started. Um, so this is the first time I've spoken about it, so please don't ask me hard questions. Um, we're called, it's called Against All Odds, and this is a study which explores positive outcomes for young adults who've had experience of the care system. And it's really looking at what doing well means for young adults who've been in care and trying to reconceptualise that rather than just imposing a set of outcomes on young people and seeing whether or not they meet up to that. And that's one thing I know that Nikki highlighted in your review of mental health and looked after children, that there's a lack of research in this area. And I have to say, whenever I do talk about the study, people are always slightly jealous that I'm doing it. And I, I feel really excited that we're... Um, we're doing this work. I'm just going to very briefly say something about methodology um, because I do think methodology is part of how we get at this question of what outcomes mean. So beyond contact, we didn't talk to young people and families. This was a kind of state of play review in each country. Um, so we did all of this in each country with um, a literature review, interviews with a small number of expert stakeholders, and then we brought those stakeholders together in each country and invited seminars. And that was really a way of kind of check and challenge on the literature, because as Donald said, what the policy says doesn't always, doesn't always bear a great deal of relationship with reality and I have to say methodologically it was really fascinating because you'd have the chief executive of a foster care organization and the chief executive of a residential care organization and someone from the ministry and they'd be disagreeing with each other and I'd be scribbling notes frantically and the deepening of understanding that you got of the issues was wonderful so although it was a small study I think we did we did manage to dig deep with that. And in a different way, this was also one which, um, which took that approach of digging deep. It was really a methodological study looking at how we could develop a qualitative longitudinal research design that would work across different national contexts and really focusing on the the detail of people's everyday lives, that quotidian life. Because I think, and I'll come on to talk more about this, that question about the everyday sometimes gets lost sight of when we focus too much on outcomes as endpoints. So trying to build an understanding, really, of transitions to adulthood, an understanding that transitions don't necessarily follow linear pathways. So how you capture that concept complexity and those different temporalities for different fields of young people's existence within the research design. And then the third study, Against All Odds, which is being led by my colleague Elizabeth Becker-Hansen in Oslo, um, is a mixed method study where we have a documentary review in each country um, we're also doing analyses of administrative data, so equivalent to 903 data in, in each country. And Charlie Owen at TCRU is leading that in the UK. 
And then we're doing qualitative longitudinal research with 24 people in each country, following these three different age groups. And we're using a multi-method interview approach there. And I'll, I'll give you an example from actually the first pilot interview that we did in, in Denmark in a, in a little while. Um, and that's building us towards um, cross-national analysis of the qualitative data as well as the quant data. And this approach of using creative methods like music is very much inspired by Sarah Wilson's work in Sterling. And I wanted to give you an example of that um, from her report, which really, to me, brings home a point that I'll come back to later, which is why when we think about what outcomes mean for young people, we need to be able to understand their everyday lives. We need to be able to understand their everyday lives in time. So she's writing about a young man who's given himself the pseudonym, the lovely pseudonym Drab. Um, and young people in this study were asked to choose a piece of music and to share that with the researchers. And he filmed on YouTube, filmed an excerpt of a song which you might have heard by Professor Green called Read All About It, um, which is a song that Professor Green wrote reflecting on his father's suicide and his relationship with his father. And Drab used this in the interview to reflect on his lack of relationship with his own father and siblings and his related sense of loss and anger. Drab was often encouraged to manage his anger, she writes, and when Sarah's spoken about this, she talks about him being required to take part in anger management courses. And when he spoke in his interview about the song and the video, and this is a, I don't know how well you can see, this is a um, still from the video, um, he wanted some acknowledgement of his right to his anger but also emphasised that over the years he'd become less angry, something that he felt was less recognised by other people. So if we're thinking about successful anger management as an outcome for this boy, from using this method of allowing him to choose his own music to talk about what that means to him, helps us to understand not just how he feels about his right to be angry, given his experiences, but also about the progress that he feels he's making, rather than somebody else judging, has he reached a good outcome or not? So I think, for me, that's a really inspirational piece of research. And just to briefly say a little bit about the cross-national approach, I think I've kind of said this already, it's about generating ideas and understandings. And this is something I always feel I have to really strongly emphasize. Because we have, over the years that I've been involved in cross-national research, working on social pedagogy with colleagues at TCRU, for example, people often say, oh, well, OK, you've done that study. Now, can you come and spend a day with my staff teaching them how to do social pedagogy? And we always say, and Jonathan, you know this, it's, it's more complicated than that. Cross-national research isn't just about transplanting programmes or services. It's about a resource for reflection. In part, because you're never comparing like with like, and I'll say a little bit about these population differences, but also because whether you're in Paris in the springtime or whether you're 
as you can see on the right-hand side, freezing in Oslo in minus 10. It's a wonderful privilege to have a job that requires you to work with interesting people all over Europe. And we need to be really careful not to assume that the grass is greener, to recognise the challenges that people in other countries experience. And so it's really important to build that into the methodology. So that's partly why I wanted to show the team on the right hand side, just to show how important that expertise is, not just trying to make you jealous but maybe a little bit of that. But I also want to give you a bit of a sense of some of these cross-country differences and how they provide a context for the work. I'm going to drill down to talk about specific cases, specific young people that we've interviewed. But the experience of those young people fit within this wider context. Um, and they fit within wider factors. Like If you look at some of these differences, in percentage of children living at risk of poverty, percentage of 15 to 24 year olds who are classed as neat. Um, Donald was talking about support with cutting the hedge, but you can see quite stark differences there between the UK and France and the two Scandinavian countries in young people who are still living with parents. Now, if we're talking about staying put, stopping young people being thrown out of care when they're 18, the fact that we've got more than a third of young people, 18 to 34, not 24, 34, living with their parents, that tells us something about Donald's point about what happens after care. And you can also see a pretty stark difference in what's spent on this and the resources that the system has to work with. So we're not comparing like with like. And one of the interesting discussions we had for the Norwegian study was initially whether if people are in employment, whether we should recruit people who are in secure employment. And I argued very strongly that in a UK context of very high, poor employment of young people, secure employment wasn't an appropriate criterion because we would expect, be expecting young people in our sample to be doing better than many of our brilliant young researchers in our university, for example. And it could just explain the bottom line figures. The bottom line, yes. Um, these are figures taken from Eurostat, and it's social protection benefits which target children and families. And the PPS per inhabitant is just a standardization of the, the money. So it's, per, it's a rate per inhabitant. So you get a, you know, controlled for this, the rate per person. And the PPS is rather than having in their own currency, it's a standardized rate. So essentially what it's showing is that Norway is spending the most and, and so on. So. Yeah, so I think just to, yes, when, I mean, when Donald talks about family support, and benefits for families. That's, that's one of the differences that we see there. I want to say a little bit about um, care populations as well. Um, these are the figures that were, we compiled for the Beyond Contact study. So they were the most recent available in each country at that time. And you can see, as Donald said, there are variations in the rates of children in foster care. 
Um, I'm including family and friends care and unrelated foster care in that figure, 75%. Um, but you can also see differences here in the overall rate of looked after children, with that rate being much, much lower, looking much lower in the UK, or in England rather. And I just want to say a little bit about that difference, because it's often assumed that we have higher thresholds for placement in this country. And like you said, Donald, that you felt like care wasn't doing badly for young people. Over the years since 1999, 2000, that I've been doing research in Europe, visiting children's homes, talking to social workers and so on, it hasn't felt that there's a difference in threshold. And when we've used things, we did a study prompted by the Care Matters paper where we... Um, we used vignettes to ask what would happen in this case. Didn't find differences across countries in decisions that would be made about placement. So it's always, it's always niggled at me and it's difficult to unpick because different countries collect data in different ways. Um, but what I will argue, and you can tell me later if you're convinced, is that um, I think for various reasons, our figures look lower than, than they really are compared to the other countries. I think this isn't about threshold. So first of all, we have a lower age of criminal responsibility. So young people are counted within care populations in other countries that would be counted in youth justice statistics here. The average population at any one time is about 2,000. There's a question which I'll come back to about stability. Um, the other point which Donald's already made is that adoption is far more common in England. And the statistics are different, but just to illustrate that point, in the Netherlands, in 2010, there were 36 domestic adoptions. And in England, we have approximately 5%, so almost 4,000 children were adopted in 2013. So children who would be adopted in the English care system, who would disappear from these statistics, those children accumulate in the numbers in other countries because they're, they're staying in care. Just to come back to the point about stability, um, these are data that we're just putting together for the administrative data comparisons for Against All Odds. And you see here a really, um, a real difference in the number of, the proportion of young people experiencing a change of placement. So here in Denmark, 7% of those in care compared with 33% in England. And we also have this figure that 38% more young people are looked after at some point during the year than are in care in the on the census date. Now, I'm not saying that one thing is right, one thing is wrong. And I know Ian's research has shown very clearly that young people staying in placements where they're not happy is not a good thing in terms of well-being and outcomes. Um, but I hope that I've unpacked a little bit that we shouldn't just assume because that rate looks lower there that this is an issue about thresholds. It's more complicated than that. So 
Why focus on everyday lives? I'm not going to um, stop on this because I think Donald's already done such a brilliant job of talking about the data. But I, what I want to kind of highlight here really is that if you look at all of these things which come out of research in this field, Mike Steen's research in particular, um, they're all things that you can only understand through attention to everyday lives of young people whilst they're in care. And I think everyday understandings are also important because it allows us to move beyond a problematizing and stigmatizing lens to get a better understanding of different pathways, different temporalities in young people's lives. And it recognises the biographical complexity of transition. We don't just assume we're all on the same track, hitting the same milestones at the same moment in our lives. And what that allows us to do is to draw on a theoretical concept from German social pedagogy, from Hans Tiersch, um, called Alltagsorientierung. I haven't got a good German accent, but it means an everyday world orientation, attending to past, present and future, and the way in which those come together in the everyday. And I think for me this, this comment from Henri Lefebvre really, really sums that up well, that if we want to understand what the care system is doing or failing to do for young people, if we want to understand the meaning of a life, that's not to be found in anything other than understanding that life itself than understanding the everyday. I think the other reason that this is important is that discourses which focus just on outcomes can often neglect the importance of the present, that children become important only in terms of future success, future productivity, and so on. And Carlo Rinaldi, who's an Italian pedagogue, writes that, reminds us that children are not only our future, they are our present. The child is not a citizen of the future. He's a citizen from the very first moment of life. The child is a bearer, here and now, of rights, of values, of culture. So if we are concerned about whether the care system is doing well enough for our children, we should be concerned because that matters for them here and now, not because that matters, or not only because that matters in terms of future life chances. So I think that that takes us, and our research has been informed by this idea of a life world orientation from German social pedagogy again. And what this implies is that, according to Grunwald and Tiersch, is that you start from where that young person is, representing their interests, representing their subjectivities, strengthening their resources and preparing them for societal demands. And that means that you start from the individual rather than looking for uniform outcomes. As Donald said, as Nikki and colleagues have written in your review, not assuming that all young people in care are the same. So then one of the things that I want to put into the mix here is a question of when we think about outcomes, when we think about what outcomes are important, we think about everyday lives. How do we think about family? And Ros Edwards defines family as these collective fusions within and across generations. 
But for young people in care, for young people leaving care, family is even more complex than that. So do we think in terms of children's needs, children's rights? Do we think in terms of, I mean, policy talks about consistent with the child's welfare, in the child's best interests. But then when we think about outcomes, we have to think about time frames. So are we talking about in the best interests of a quiet life during that placement? Are we talking about in the best interests in terms of the whole of that young person's childhood? Or are we talking about their, their lifespan? Are we talking about who might cut their hedge in future? Or who, who they're going to phone up when they're 35 and they're having trouble at work? And I think we heard some, some good advice here from a senior policy advisor that we interviewed in the Beyond Contact study, who made the point that the relationship between placed children and their parents is never static, it's dynamic. It ties to Donald's point about bifurcation here. It's important that as professionals we never say good enough or not good enough. It's a difficult relationship and a different sort of relationship. The child needs to know his roots, to work through roots, life history, siblings, and so on. And I want to just briefly um, give you a couple of case examples from our research that I think help to understand these points. So this is um, a boy who chose the pseudonym Angel, um, which I like better than Drab, I must say, um, who Hélène interviewed in France. And... He's been in placement since he was two and a half. First foster placement lasted for 10 years. Um, and then broke down. Um, and he said it was, Hélène asked him about this. And he said it was because he was behaving badly. He used to get mad, he said, pique des crises. But that's over now. He then moved into a second placement where he stayed for three years. Uh, and when I read this account, it, it really resonated with some of the cases that Ian discusses in the pursuit of permanence. Um, he, he stayed in this placement unhappy for three years until he got up the courage to tell his educatrice, his pedagogue, that he wanted to change. And what you see here is a real careful planning of the move. So... The placement didn't break down instantly. She didn't switch right away. But they talked about it. And then she found another placement. And then he went there for 10 days. And Hélène says to try it out. He says, we got to know each other. And later in the interview, he's, he's talking about which photos he could have taken. He says, well, I could have taken a photo of the garden. Because the garden, I play soccer there and basketball. And when it's good weather, the table set up, we discuss things, and then when there's all the family. And she asks him, do you feel at home here? And he says, oh yeah, anyway, that's what I've been told. They told me you're at home here. Whereas in my previous foster home, it wasn't at home. So he's still, he hasn't been here very long at this stage. He's still quite cautious about it. But he's starting to think that this could be somewhere that he could feel at home that that's what he's been told. But you also see this complexity of family um, in that he has regular contact with both of his previous foster families. So 
The family that he lived with for 10 years, he's just about to go back and spend four days with during the summer holidays. And he makes the point that although it did break down, they get on well now and that's fine. They're still an important family in his life. But despite still being very angry with the, the mother in the foster family that he'd moved from, um, he still keeps in touch with the people that were important to him, that he did like from that family, still keeps in touch with them on Facebook. So it's also a nice example of how social media is allowing this young man to manage his different experiences of family, to manage relationships with people that are important in his complicated life. And I want to give you another illustration of this. This is from an interview with a young man in the UK. Um, which is highlighting people and places important in his life. And also methodologically gives him a bit of a space to reflect as he talks, because he's not looking at Hélène, he's drawing the map as he's talking. And I think what's important here is that when you see the map alongside his talk about it, um, you get a much stronger understanding of his life and a stronger understanding of what you might understand as being a really important outcome for him as a young care leaver living in semi-independent accommodation. So he's talking about friends, and he makes reference to um, this house here, which at this point he hasn't drawn on the map. And he talks about how important this house and this friendship is to him. He actually stays there three nights a week. He's taken TVs over there, and it's somewhere, and you can see in Denmark they talk about a concept called hygge, which means kind of coziness, coziness and a sense of belonging. And you can see that how he talks about that. I think what's also interesting is the way in which, as he comes to draw this, although there's quite a lot of space, you can almost see how conceptually these two homes are situated in the centre of his map. He puts it right in the middle because this is such an important place for him. And he talks about the detail of, he says, oh, it's quite sad. I know exactly what their roof looks like. That, that level of detail narratively gives you a sense of how important this place is to him. So you can see how important and how literally central in his drawing this place and this family is in his everyday life. So is that an outcome? That's not something that is getting measured anywhere, except through this kind of methodology. And you can also see the contrast between that map and this map, which is a young man, 14-year-old, in foster care in France. Um, and the thing, I won't go into this in detail because I'm conscious of time, but the thing that I really want to highlight, and we know from, for example, Gillian Schofield's work, how important a sense of belonging is, that you've got, he's got the maison, the house in the centre, and his college, and the library, where at the bibliothèque, where he likes to go and read comics, simply as the little supermarket where he likes to go and buy sweets, and down here, physically further away, is his bedroom, chambre. And that's where this boy spends a lot of time on his tablet, which everybody gets really cross about. And he 
spends time on his tablet on Facebook with his birth family and time on his tablet playing computer games where kind of character-driven games, I'm looking at the younger people in the audience because I'm assuming you'll understand this better, where he's a character, other people are characters. So he's not defined as this boy who's in care, but he's a character who's very skilled at playing this particular computer game. And that's quite separate from his life in the house, hence the, hence the distance. I just want to give you one more example quickly. Um, this is the first pilot interview in Denmark. Um, a young man who's at university and lives with his girlfriend in a flat that his foster carers have bought for him. And you can see a little bit here about his trajectory, which I think is a very stark contrast to the trajectory that Donald described at the beginning of his talk. Um, he still has contact with his birth family who live abroad and his, his biological brother and him have travelled abroad to stay with the birth family in the past. So that continued relationships with birth families, even for somebody who's never, the plan was never that he would return home from care, that continued support for that relationship is really important. And I wanted to show you one of the photos that he took to show us his everyday life. Um, because I think it's also, for me, a really powerful contrast to some of the negative stereotypes that we see portrayed of young people who've lived in the care system. This is a photo of something that he and his girlfriend like to do, which is to get takeaway sushi and then to have a lovely dinner at home. And the other thing which our Danish colleagues pointed out is that the, at the top, this was just before Christmas, there's a very traditional Danish table setting there. So this really is a picture of their happy domesticity. And you can see that he's doing well by lots of objective measurable criteria, that he's a young man in higher education. And he does include pictures of himself at university amongst the pictures he takes. But this happiness in his everyday life is one of the really important things that he wants us to understand. So using these kind of visual and creative methods, the conversations that you have with young people take a different starting point. The interviewee gets to decide what are the things that are important to discuss, whether that's their sushi or whether that's their computer games. It gives a space for reflection, access to what my colleague Senior Raven calls access to the interviewee's emotional space. It gets beyond structural understandings of outcomes and structural understandings of lives. And it captures these difficult res to research, these hidden but important dimensions of everyday life. So just to conclude then, I think what I'm arguing from our research is that, of course, it's important to think about outcomes, but to think about outcomes with a life world orientation. So we attend to the subjective, the social and the structural. So the, the young Danish man, you know, I'm not in any way arguing that he's typical of a young care leaver in Denmark, but we have to think about the wider structural politics that make that possible. 
have to think about how we reconstruct our taken-for-granted assumptions about young people and about the care system itself, and how we understand outcomes in a way that takes account of what Grunwald and Tiersch term the risky open-endedness of everyday life.